0: Well, um, it's great to be with you. My name's Asa Win Stanley. Um, I am an investigative journalist based in London. Um, I uh, also have a podcast and a substack. Um, I, the main outlets I write for are the Electronic Intifada, electronicintifada.net, um, where we have a podcast, a regular podcast, and I'm the co-host of that podcast. Electronic Intifada focuses on Palestine and the Palestine Solidarity movement around the world. Um, And, you know, we have so we focus on the issue of Palestine, but we have a global vision of it and we try and keep it within the framework of um, world imperialism and resistance to world imperialism, resistance to American hegemony. And so we try and have a historical framework of things. Um, and um, I have my own Substack now, which has been going for about a year and a half now. It's doing pretty well. And I, it's I call it Palestine is still the issue because the idea is that I'm delving into other topics than Palestine, but I'm still keeping Palestine in the frame as something. It's always going to be the issue to me. It's always going to be something I return to. But I try and um, you know research other topics and. In the co- I've, what I've found in my you know decade and more of um, journalism on this topic is that I've, I've I've found I I keep getting a sort of crash course in various different histories, hidden histories. Palestine always seems to lead to different roads of investigation, and um, you know one of those topics is the topic we're going to discuss today, um, which you know I. Started learning about in depth really when uh, the issue of Ukraine came up and the issue of how Israel is one of the kind of Western imperialist powers which has been supporting Nazis in Ukraine um, less than others you could say. But I wrote an article about that in twenty eighteen, and then I it reminded me of this issue of Operation Gladio, which you know I am sure you are going to explain in a minute. But um, it reminded me of that. I you know I'd heard vaguely about it when I was younger and um, in sort of activist circles, and I started reading more about it and finding out more about it, researching it more. And it's a really fascinating and disturbing topic, which I think, I mean, I think even on the left, we probably don't talk about it as much as we should. And if if we had been talking about it more before this year, um, really with, with the, the war in Ukraine, the escalation of the war in Ukraine, you could say, um, then there would have been more awareness of the problems with um, what's with the Ukrainian government and its um, Nazi links.
1: Yeah, um, and you you started this series on your sub, Substack about Operation Gladio, um, kind of around the beginning of the Ukraine war, and um, it was a really timely series um, because, you know, it seems like. Every other week or so, um, these news outlets, um, they publish a photo of an Azov soldier or a Ukrainian military soldier, and someone on Twitter zooms in and finds some kind of Nazi insignia on their uniform. And so, you know, this kept happening over and over again, and it really, um, you know, uh, raised a lot of questions about the U.S. and NATO involvement in this war and the constant U.S. military aid packages being delivered to Ukraine and who we were sending military aid to, right? Because um, Mm. I think at this point we sent like almost $17, $17 billion in military aid to Ukraine right now. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, there are open Nazis in the Ukrainian military. And so this discussion sort of generated a lot of renewed interest in, you know, what other operations has the CIA um, and NATO and the U.S. been involved in in the past? Um, And we're going to talk about Operation Gladio uh, today. But Operation Gladio wasn't even the only... um, secret operation where the U.S. worked with uh, Nazis and former Nazis, right? There is Operation Paperclip where the U.S. and the CIA recruited Nazi scientists and je- engineers and they brought them over to the U.S. through these like um, underground rat lines uh, mm. that brought um, former Nazis and top Nazi officials from Germany into Latin America and the U.S., mm. Um But Operation Gladio, which we're going to talk about today, uh, was an operation by American, British and French intelligence services during the Cold War. I think it started in 1948. And at its height, I think they could count on thousands of former Nazi operatives. And um, the U.S. trained these secret soldiers like in the remote islands of the Mediterranean And um, these soldiers had access to secret weapons caches. And it was um, an operation of stay behind armies is what they were called. And so as the Germans withdrew after World War II, um, with the help of the OSS, which was the precursor to the CIA, um, they left a bunch of secret troops in the countries that they occupied called stay behind armies. And the purpose was to set up a base of resistance for, um, um, you know, just in case the uh, the Soviets invaded Western Europe, um, because this was what they were uh, anticipating was a third world war. So maybe to get started, could you talk a little bit, like more in detail, about what Operation Gladio was, and you know what countries were involved and to what extent US and NATO were involved.
0: Yes. Um, well, you've given a, a fairly good overview of it there. And it's um, it's a really fascinating topic. Um, I mean, I called it and, and the title of my first piece in the series was NATO's secret Nazi armies, because this was really the clandestine wing, you could say, of this kind of global, operation to uh by by us empire to make use of former nazis after the second world war i mean in a way the roots of gladio are um in the mid 40s while the second world war was still going on but it was you know winding down because it was very clear hitler was being defeated and you know so you can say the roots of it were in 1944, 1945, with um, the, uh, um, the 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 Salo Republic in northern Italy, a lot of those, you know, which was this kind of uh, puppet um, uh, fascist republic set up by the Nazis as as the Mussolini's uh, fascist regime was on the decline, they were trying to prop him up. Um, a lot of those former Mussoliniites were recruited by the OSS, as you said, a unit within OSS called X2, um, which was, um, as you said, the precursor to the CIA. Um, A lot of these Nazis were then uh, recruited into various different functions of the of the US Empire. Um, and One of them was Gladio. So it Gladio was actually, I mean, it was massive, you know, it was huge. And I think that the the we st- i think there's still so much we don't know about it and it's still quite hard to find information about it especially in english you know there's there's um there's been only really one book in english which has really written about the whole thing which has uh, given an overview of the whole thing and that's um by a swiss historian called Danielle uh, ganser who's written a really brilliant book um in in the mid 2000s called uh, nato secret armies And he was really I mean, he's he's, you know, he's still very active and you can see his lectures on YouTube and whatnot. But the book itself is worth reading. And it's you know, it was a major source for my series on this on my Substack. And And he he was really almost uniquely positioned to write the book because apart from his skills as a researcher um, and his expertise of NATO, um, he's you know, as a Swiss historian specifically, he has command of several different European languages. And really, um, Gladio, and this is something I I tried to lay out in overview in my series, Gladio really spread from Britain in the West to to Turkey in the East. You know, it was it was massive. And really, one of the main things in terms of the secret operations of Gladio that it carried out um, were false flags, false flag attacks against civilian populations all across um, several different uh, European countries in the west uh western europe especially um and um you know i mean and that's a really interesting term false flags right because it's it's something that kind of gets used by um really uh really people on the right actually like i uh, and mm, yeah. kind of sort like of alex kooky. jones yeah. alex yeah. jones exactly uses it a lot and has these really kind of outlandish kooky theories where you know that there's no basis for saying things like the sandy hook uh, shootings was a you know was a false flag and all this kind of nonsense and so the term gets delegitimized in that way um but you know the, the fact is there are false flags in history that have happened and um this was something that um gladio was really specialized in almost so what there was there's 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 a lot of evidence uh, you know for example um the 1982 Bologna train station uh, bombing in Italy, this um, city, which is well known as um, a very left wing city, was targeted um, by this massive train station bombing in which, you know, this, uh, I forget how many people died now. Eight, I've got the figures 85, here. 85, yeah. That's right. Yeah. 85 people died. 200 people were injured. Um 1980. It happened actually, and you know it's widely believed in Italy this was carried out by um, operation Gladio Gladio I mean technically Gladio was the name of the Italian unit. so I, I should take a, a bit of a step back and explain the structure of it. Mm-hmm. so it's it, there was secret armies in several different European countries um, which were under this framework of what was as you said, they were understood to be stay behind armies. So these ostensible, you know, these were top secret. It was complete. It was very, very secret. You know, it didn't come out really until the end of the Cold War. You know, there were several in, in the early 90s. There were several parliamentary investigations in Italy, in Belgium. Um, I, I believe there was a Swiss inquiry. I don't know so much about that one. Um, but that, you know, a lot of this was confirmed by uh, especially the Italian government um but throughout the entire cold war it was top top secret but within those states within those um uh, intelligence agencies and it was usually military intelligence there was these secret inner units which were uh, absolutely stacked to the rafters with the far right so it was everybody from monarchists to extreme right fascists, to outright neo-Nazis and even literal Nazis who were, you know, officers for Adolf Hitler, you know. And and this was this was part of a wider framework that you mentioned, whereby the US Empire after the the Second World War recruited um, recruited several many high profile uh, Nazi war criminals for various different reasons, mainly to, um, uh, you know, to fight the Soviet Union after the second world war. Um, there was, there was one example which came out only very recently. Actually, uh, there was, um, so there were several different gladio units, gladio type units in West Germany. So West Germany infamously, I mean, you know, this was all always very said. It was always said by, um, by Western powers to be sort of Soviet propaganda that West Germany was stacked with Nazis. Well, you know, it, it may have been part of what the Soviets were saying. Um, but it also happens to be true, you know, there was mm-hmm. West, the West German, um, the West German intelligence service, for example, was led by, um, for many years was led by Reinhard Reinhardt Gellen, who was, you know, a very infamous Nazi criminal. Um, And he was recruited by the Americans, especially, um, and he worked for the CIA for many years as well um, because of his, he had vast amounts of files on the Soviet Union. He was part of the Nazis war effort, Eastern war effort against the Soviets and the, you know, Operation Barbarossa and all that. So he had this important, valuable um, uh, intelligence against the Soviets that the Americans just then you know, swooped in and, 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 um, and took over. And, you know, they, the, you know, these people were Nazi war criminals, often they were involved in the Holocaust, you know, and they, um, you know, it, it was just something, this was a part of a wider framework. So the, um, there was, uh, one of the most infamous cases was Klaus Barbie, uh, mm-hmm. who was an SS and a Gestapo officer. And he was directly responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands of resistance fighters and Jewish people. But he was recruited by the U.S. military's Counterintelligence Corps in 1947. Uh, he was hidden from the War Crimes Tribunal and he was spirited out of the country. Um, and there were several different West, as I said, there were several different gladio type organizations, secret armies, secret stay behind armies um, within West Germany. Um, and, in, you know, it's funny, they all, each... Each sort of Gladio, as it were, had a different name. They they're all different obscure kind of names depending on the country they were in. Gladio technically was the Italian one and we called the whole network the Gladio network because um, the, the Italian one was the first one we found out about in detail in, in 1990, I believe it was, when the Italian governments first started um, uh, you know, revealing it and admitting to it. Um, but, you know, it, it for, for really for decades, little pieces of information had been coming out here and there. And one of the earliest actually exposures was as early as 1952. And that was the West German one where there was a um, there was two organizations, two related organizations called um, the League of German Youth and a co- its covert um, technical service. You know, they, they sound sort of innocuous or bland but actually these, um, were kind of stay behind, stay behind type units, gladio type units, um, which were basically plotting, um, to basically take control and, and, and make sure that, um, these regimes remained in the control of the, the Western, uh, the American hegemony really. Um, and it was, it, you know, it. It actually did come to light in 1952. The 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 Bund Deutscher Junge and the League of German Youth and the technical service. It came out because it was exposed that they had a death list of um, communist and socialist politicians, even you know SDP moderate social democrat politicians, including um, government officials at the time who were to be quote liquidized in the event that there was a Soviet invasion. So you know we should I mean we should take I mean, my analysis of the whole idea of a stay behind. So my take on that is, and this is what I put forward in the articles, is that that was a pretext, that this idea of a a Soviet invasion of Western Europe was never seriously um, considered to be a serious reality by um, the managers of Western imperialism, by the Americans and the British especially. But that was kind of an internal justification for it. And then later when it came out in the 90s, that was their public justification for it. They said, well, you know, we had to be prepared because we thought the Soviets were going to invade us. Actually, the real target of these so-called stay-behind units was um, the populations, was the populations of those countries to make sure that they would not, um, you know, th- that they would not become socialist countries, that they would not fall under the communist orbit, that they would not be... And it was the threat of democracy, you know, because especially, you know... OK, I mean, Britain is one thing. You know, Britain has a communist party and it still, you know, it still has a small communist party now. But even at its height, the communist party of Britain was... Um, I think it had one MP at one point. But it was very different in France. It was very different in Belgium... And it was very different in Italy because, of course, you know, the, the communist parties in those countries, and especially in Italy, absolutely led the partisans. It led the resistance to Soviet um, occupation, uh, to, sorry, excuse me, to Nazi occupation. Mm-hmm. Um, the, and, you know, in, in alliance with the Soviets, obviously, um, the, with the, you know, the, they led the resistance to Nazi occupation. Um, and um, as a result, after the war, they were very popular. There was mass popular support for the communist parties of Belgium, Italy, and France, and, and others. And so something had to be done. And one of the things that had to be done, apart from direct CIA intervention, which they they did do in Italy in the first, um, the CIA pumped um, you know millions of dollars into the uh, covertly into the first democratic election in post-war Italy. And they they narrowly prevented the um, Communist Party from winning. Um, and so, you know, they knew that wouldn't be enough. And so, you know, it, up to, you take it up to the 70s, the Communist Party was, you know, really popular. It had mass popular support and it was on the verge of joining a coalition government. Um, and uh, so Gladio was activated. And so, you know, these stay behind units, the target was really the populations. The idea was, um, in Italy, it was called the strategy of tension whereby basically it was mass terror. The idea was that, oh, look, the country's going to hell. You need to support us. You need to support the conservative establishment. You need to, you need to get behind us and, oh, look, look at these bombings. They're being carried out by the left, you know, Mm -hmm. so and it these bombings were actually done by these kind of Nazi and pro-nazi and fascist um, covert operatives who are acting with the uh, support of the state of the secret state especially of of military intelligence in 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 all these different countries in Western Europe um and um, they you know they They falsely portrayed these terrorist attacks as if they were carried out by left-wing groups, you know, and Mm it was it was a thing to try and um, discredit the left, Uh, and it was quite effective.
1: Yeah, I mean, you brought up a really good point about um, you know the public, um, what they said. The reason the public reasoning behind Operation Gladio was it was in preparation for a Soviet attack in Western Europe, but the Soviets at that time were very clear that they had no plans um, to invade Western Europe and um Uh, Could you just maybe talk a little bit about the political situation at the time of Gladio, particularly in Italy, because at that time, left wing parties were ascendant. And even if politicians weren't outwardly socialist or communist, they at least wanted relations with the Soviet Union, which um, the U.S. did not want at all. So um you know it wasn't as you said it wasn't so much uh, a preparation for a Soviet invasion they were also afraid of communist parties coming into power through electoral means right
0: Yeah I mean and and there was uh, th- that's exactly it it was the threat of democracy and it was the threat of proletarian democracy I mean let's not mince words that's that's what it was you know and and this this was something that um was exposed really. I mean, another important source for my series was a 1992 documentary on the BBC of all things um, by a really amazing filmmaker called Alan Frankovich um, who, you know, who died very young in mysterious circumstances, but um, you know, there's speculation that he may have been assassinated by the CIA. It's possible, um, but we don't know, but he certainly died um, prematurely after some, you know really incredible um documentaries and this was one of them uh, and it was called um it was called operation gladio simply and it was under the bbc's time watch strand so it appeared on mainstream um british television you know in, in three parts over three weeks on bbc2 you know um uh, you know it, it would never happen now and it was a really astonishing i mean i it's um you know, I put it up on my uh, sub stack as well and uh, a free post because, you know, it's, it's on YouTube. So I've just reposted the YouTube. So people should definitely go and watch it. It's amazing to watch. Like it just shows they interviewed. He managed to interview some really key players in Gladio. It's everybody really from, um, you know, senior CIA officers um, to... Um, People who were directly involved in Gladio, people who were like uh, Nazis, uh, fascists, mm-hmm. <laughs> who were actually fascist. He talks to one particular. So what made me think of this is he talked to one particular um, Italian fascist who really explained the motivation and the thinking uh, behind it. Um, uh, his name was uh, Vincenzo Vinciguerra. Now he was he was a fascist. He was an Italian fascist. He was part of one of these Gladio groups. And he was a part of a, a small neo-fascist group called the called the Ordino Nouvelle Navarro. That's my I don't know how to speak Italian. That's I'm sure I've massacred that. But it's bet new order is basically the meaning of it. Um, and he, um, you know, he, he what happened with him was he sort of went renegade. Right. He was like a sort of ultra fascist, so he became more away started to realize his group was being manipulated by the italian deep state um and you know he wasn't repentant of what he did but he had a basically a rebellion against um uh, against the italian deep state and he carried out an attack um against italian gendarmes so and it really kind of exposed um the things that he was involved in and it was a it was a key um, key moment in the exposure of Gladio in Italy because it, it happened slowly over the course of years with these um, uh, investigations in the courts and so forth. And um, he, in that film, in that Alan Frankovich film, which was aired on the BBC, he he is interviewed, you know, and he's, I mean, he's speaking from, he must have been on day release or in the visitor's room in prison because he's he was putting, because after he turned against his, his masters, as it were, um, he was put in jail, his protection ended and he was put in jail. But what I've got the quote here, what he said, he explained the motivation. He said, quote, you were supposed to attack civilians, women, children for one simple reason, to force the Italian public to turn to the state, turn to the regime and ask for greater security the right placed itself at the service of the state, which created a strategy aptly called the strategy Strategy of tension. tension, So the idea is that there would be left-wing groups, you know, small, ultra-left-wing groups and right-wing groups fighting each other. That was the image that they were trying to portray, that, you know, you would turn to the state. And he called it... The other, the next thing that he said, which is relevant to this point you're making, is that he described Gladio as, quote, an invisible army that is poised for battle against the hypothetical invader, sorry, that is not poised for battle against the hypothetical invader, but rather one to be used internally against what the military have always called the fifth column of the USSR, the Communist Party of Italy and the extreme left. So. You know he's. You know he, this is an ultra fascist, and he's he's obviously trying to destroy the left. But he's admitting there that it wasn't actually targeted against the USSR. It was a targeted against um, Italians who were voting for the Communist Party of Italy. So mm-hmm. it's important to remember at this time. I mean, he, the Italian party was completely disarmed, and you know even uh, among some on on the left, on on what could be termed the ultra left, the Communist Party of Italy was criticized for its what was called the euro term turn where it was um was kind of moderating its views in a way and that um uh after so after it, and, and this began after the second world war during the second world war it was armed you know it was it, they they were leading the partisan uprising against the nazis and against mussolini Um, But after the the war ended, the Communist Party disarmed its militias and they committed to electoral politics, you know, for better or worse. They did do that. And all along throughout the whole Cold War, this was the threat that they were um, they could have won and they would have won if there hadn't been intervention very clearly. Um, They would have gone into government. And and this threat, you know, lasted all throughout the the Cold War because in the 1970s they were they were on the verge of coming to a coalition government with the Conservatives of all people because there was um, an independently minded leader of the Italian Conservative Party uh, the Christian Democrats um, who was sceptical of U.S. domination of his country and he saw the kind of Gladio type machinations um and um you know he thought that there should be a compromise it was called the historic compromise and and that was really aborted
1: yeah um i think like so you mentioned that um the the us and nato um and western europe they were terrified of communists coming into power through democratic means, democracy was really what they were afraid of. And the U.S. was terrified that should communists come into power in Italy, they would pull out of NATO and the alliance would just collapse. So NATO played like a really, um, uh, you know, a really big role in all of this. I remember watching part of the the BBC documentary that you were just talking about in preparation for this. And one of the people that they had interviewed had said that even though these stay-behind networks were not technically part of NATO, there was actually an amendment in NATO protocol that there was an agreement of the government not to prosecute any right-wing or anti-communist activists in their own countries um, if they were caught. And you could not be admitted into NATO unless you sign this agreement. So do you like know, um, You know, do you have a like understanding of what the role of NATO in all of this was?
0: Yeah, somewhat. The, so as I mentioned, like Gladio had its roots before NATO existed. So mm-hmm. um, it, it wasn't a. It wasn't originally a project of nato in in that regard but then again you know nato is kind of really just a front for american imperial power that's simply what it is anyway but yes it did these uh, the gladio network it's very clear if you read danielle ganser's book it's very clear that the gladio network very quickly came under the um auspices of nato you know there was there was a there was um coordination Absolutely. These groups were coordinated right across Europe under the auspices of NATO. You know, there was a there was a, 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 a planning entity which was called it had all different names at different points in history, but it was called the clandestine planning community at, um, committee at one point, you know, which sounds pretty unsubtle. Um, but, you know, that's what it was. It was it was absolutely um, under the auspices of NATO. Um, that's why, you know, Danielle Ganser called it, called it um, NATO's secret army. Um, it's, um, it was something that was absolutely coordinated. And, and you see that in the the fact that of British involvement. Now, the British deep state is like particularly secretive. And the, the British state in general is incredibly secretive. Like we've got a freedom of information law, but it's practically useless at this point because everything falls under an exemption. Um, And, you know, you can't, it's it's very difficult to get information out about um, what the British secret state especially is up to. But um, we know for a fact that the British, uh, the SAS, the British Special Forces were involved in training Italian, specifically um, Italian, especially Italian Gladio. The Italian fascists who were in these gladio units were being trained, you know, in um, on the south coast of of England. Um, They've been trained in explosives. As you said, you know, they were given access to arms caches. There are arms caches all over Italy um, and in several different uh, of these countries. Um, Arms were stashed. There was, um, you know, access to money, um, cash. Um, there was, there was the harpoon system, which was this shortwave radio, which could broadcast over distances, you know, in the, in the era before the internet was existed, um, outside of, you know, very small, um, technical circles. Before there was, you know, mass access to the internet. And before it was a really practical thing to use, having the ability to communicate over shortwave radio over distances of 6,000 kilometers. Um, was absolutely the, the state of the art you know this is something that you know couldn't be done by anyone else except for spooks and we're talking about um nazis you know we're talking about extreme fascists who were given all this equipment and um protection by the state um and there were unintended consequences of that sometimes you know as i as i've already mentioned uh, vincenzo vinciguera this um Italian fascist who sort of turned state's witness, as it were, um, he um, he attacked um, two Italian gendarmes. He set a bomb, the Petiano bombing of um, I think it was 1972, round about there. But it's all in my articles. Um, and there was there was another incident as well, which I wrote about in in the third article about Belgium, which is quite fascinating, where the Belgium Gladio facilitated the entry of, um, American special forces into Belgium, where they attacked a Belgian military base and actually ended up killing one Belgian troop, a Belgian, um, I'm not sure. It was never clear to me whether it was a Belgian gendarme or, um, you know, regular army troop, but certainly a a member of the Belgian armed forces was killed um, in this, in this attack. And then this was, it was then sort of covered up as, oh, well, it was like a training exercise that went wrong. Um, but actually, you know, if you look at the reporting of it, it seems very clear, this was under the auspices of Gladio because. The, the weapons that were used in that attack later then, um, were sort of planted amongst, um, groups that were ostensibly left wing, you know? So mm-hmm. again, we see this kind of, um, this agent provocateur behavior.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, it's a good point that you make, that they were working with like these neo-fascist groups, but they were also infiltrating uh, a lot of these left and ultra-left groups. Yeah, yeah, so I I kind of want to talk a little bit more about this strategy strategy of tension and, you know, what it looked like. uh, there was like a period in Italy called the Years of Lead um, from the late 60s to the mid 80s. And this was, you know, a, this corresponded to the time that um, Operation Gladio was in existence. And the Years of Lead was, it was marked by these uh, series of attacks between ultra left and neo fascist groups. And it was part of this strategy of tension that you were talking about. Mm. and. It was just like a string of terrorist attacks between um, far left and far right groups. And I think like there were over 14,000 terrorist attacks total, which amounted to an attack nearly on a daily basis. It's amazing to think
0: about now that period of history, like all these bombings going off across Europe. And it was, you know, it was just like, oh, well, that's sort of what happens uh, yeah, yeah, it's a
1: very dark period in, in, Italy, yeah. in Italy's history, and I was watching um, a news, um, a news story on it um, on France 24, and um, one of it was actually um, the son of the one of the bodyguards of Aldo Moro, who was mm. killed. And he was going to different schools talking about this period, the years of lead. And a lot of the high school students they interviewed afterward, they were like, I had no idea this happened.
0: Yeah. I mean, this, this is the amazing thing now. I mean, even, I mean, that's really interesting to hear that, um, you know, even in Italy, it's, it's covered up a lot. Like the, I mean, I think that's why it's really good you're doing this episode because we do need to talk about it more that it's, it's hard now even to find much information about it online. I mean, um, I mean, I never rely on Wikipedia. Anyway, I, I think it's a really unreliable source. And even more so now, I mean, I think it's kind of a, a tool of Western intelligence agencies and corporations, especially as kind of PR. But I mean, looking on some of these things on there, just out of curiosity, you can see how they're really covered up a lot of these things are. Um, and it you know there there are there are i mean it's there if you know where to look you, there's a there's there's a few books so i've mentioned one of the books already but there's another one um specifically about italy by philip uh willan called the puppet masters which um i know you have um so for people watching on video that's a good book i mean it's only it's only really about italy it doesn't mm-hmm. really get into the rest of the gladio network across europe but um uh, as I said, Danielle Ganser's book is really the only book in English that I know of, certainly that that really does get into the whole network. But Philip William one is very good on Italy. So you know the information is there if you know where to look for it. But it's it is a difficult subject to cover because it sounds mad like it's like it's crazy like that they did this like and it's um and and there's i haven't even got into one of the most kooky aspects of it which is that because i don't know that uh, so much more about it but one of the um the key parts of the italian gladio was something called the p2 masonic lodge which is you know it was was freemason's so there was this kind of, and then you're sort of getting into the dangerous territory of, you know, weird conspiracy theories, um, where you these kind of um, factually based discussions, um, they you know can be dislodged and can be sort of distracted. But you know, it's it is a fact that a lot of the members of the um, the Italian Gladio network were part of this um, P two Masonic Lodge organization. Um, so yeah, it's 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 hard, and also just the, the sheer scale of it is massive. Like the the uh, there's a really good chapter in Danielle Ganser's book um, uh, about Turkey, which gets into the um, Turkish deep state. And in Turkey, the the difference in Turkey, why it was even worse in a way, was that. I mean, in Italy and in France and in all these other countries in Western Europe, they were preparing a a large part of the reason for these bombings and attacks and these false flags and all the rest of what they were doing was um, to prepare the ground and to plan for coups. Like Mm. if if there'd been a a communist had been elected to power um, or even if just like a left-wing socialist government had been elected to power or even like in some cases, in, in the case of Italy... Um, you know, uh, even a, a, a conservative who was not in hoc to the Americans, they could actually perform a coup, like these fascists could carry out a coup. Well, in Turkey they did actually do that, you know, the Italian deep state did do that, you know again, with the aid of um, fascist organisations, in the case of Turkey it was um, an organisation which still exists called the Grey Wolves, which is this extremist um, really kind of fascist oriented um, you know, Turkish nationalist group um, you know, it, they did carry out coups and, um, you know, it was something, um, which was very powerful for the longest time. So, you know, the, the, the um, the issue of, um, what happened in Italy, uh, with the years of lead is that, um, yeah, there was this attempt to sort of portray it as a war between the left and the right. But actually, and you see this, especially in Philip Willen's book. Um, more often than not, it was the Italian deep state, which was pulling the strings. You know, they were manipulating, um, they were manipulating events so that it would turn out to be, and it would sort of be portrayed that way. Um, and, uh, again, deep state is a term, another term that's been legitimized, but you know, there, there are organizations in, especially in Western Europe. You know, intelligence services which have a permanent base, a permanent security base, which are not affected by um, governments that are elected. You know, they they're in power; they have this kind of deep state power. You know, so you know these these things do exist.
1: Mm -hmm. You talked a bit about the Bologna bombing uh, a little while ago. That was part of this of Operation Gladio, in which. know, it was in 1980 and a bombing at the central train station in Bologna killed 85 people and left like a couple hundred injured. And um, was it did the Italian government blame it on the Red Brigades or was it like a neo fascist group that carried it out? I'm, I might be getting like some information mixed up.
0: Yeah, well, this, this is the thing. This is the thing about Gladio. This is always part of what Gladio is. It's always the media response. And then the media goes into history. So there, uh, there was an attempt very early on with the Bologna bombing to blame the left. They were saying mm-hmm. that it was, um, it, they were saying that it was the red brigades, because as you said, like the partly as a, resu- a result of a reaction against the fascists, there were ultra left groups that in several of these different countries who started um to make their own attacks um and so they blamed it on them but there was never any evidence of that and that kind of died away quite quickly and it was only last year and i learned about this while i was researching the second piece which focuses on italy um there was there there have been several fascists now who have been convicted of the bologna bombing um Mm -hmm. and um Paolo Bellini was convicted last, um, actually only earlier this year. So it was, it would have been, um, in April of 2022 that he was convicted, but he, he joined several of his other, um, Italian fascists in, in jail for that bombing. Um, but you know, this was, it is very widely believed in Italy that the Bologna bombing was carried out by Gladio because, you know, as Vincenzo Vinciguerra said, um, None of the, these groups did not act independently. The right-wing groups, um, they, uh, they made this kind of pact with the Italian deep state and they acted in its interests, you know, because they wanted, to keep, um, they wanted to keep this kind of hegemony, which ultimately, above all of this kind of state, was essentially was the CIA in alliance with the British who were carrying out training in this kind of junior partner role um the cia was behind a lot of it and so yeah the bologna bombing is you know you know it it uh, people it is very widely believed in italy to be um to have been carried out and there's so many things i mean we don't have time to get into all the details but you know it's it's there in the books and i am mm-hmm. in the in the bbc film and I, I lay it out in my articles you know there's just things like the um the the uh The uh, according to Daniel Ganser's book, um, the explosives that were used in Bologna, um, were, you know, where the explosives, uh, they were from a cache of the Italian military intelligence, you know, so this, this is where the NATO structure comes in, because NATO was over the uh, military intelligence in each of these countries, the military intelligence was not accountable to anyone in the governments in those countries. Um, And those military intelligence below them, they had these cells, these gladio cells. So, you know, who were essentially these fascists who then could carry out this dirty work for them. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was a complex, highly complex structure.
1: There's another event that I want to bring up um, during the years of Lead that was part of this operation. And um, it's the one of the kidnapping and assassination of Aldo Moro, who I mentioned a few minutes ago. Mm. Um, but this is, I mean, this is crazy. Like, they... Yeah. Um, so <laughs> This one is
0: really mind-blowing.
1: Yeah, <laughs> they literally kidnapped and assassinated a prime minister of Italy. Um, so, uh, yeah, so this happened in 1978. And it was this the red brigades who we mentioned a few times um they basically kidnapped and they kidnapped Aldo Moro who was the prime minister of Italy and they had him they had him in detention for like 53 days or something like that and then his body was later found in the trunk of a car mm-hmm. um but they later discovered that secret intelligence were involved in this and that the red brigades at that time had been Like thoroughly infiltrated by the CIA and Gladio, and they were actually steering the direction. Essentially, being
0: co-opted by then. Yeah, yeah, they were being directed. So, I mean, this it is mind blowing, and it sounds like something out of some sort of you know crazy novel. I mean, you wouldn't even make it out for a novel because it would sound too weird. But yes, Aldo Moro. So he was he was the president of the Christian Democrats, as you said. He was a former prime minister of Italy. Um, and at that time he, I mean, he, at the time he was kidnapped, he was no longer the prime minister, but he was still a incredibly important political figure who was trying to negotiate a coalition government in Italy. Um, and, um, you know, he was, he was this kind of, he was a popular figure. He was a kind of almost father of the nation in a lot of ways that, so, as I said, you know, he was, he was a conservative with a small C, you know, he was, uh, he, 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 he was a former, um, Prime Minister for the Christian Democrats, he was still a a highly influential figure leading the Christian Democrats. Um, And he was a religious man, you know, he was a Catholic and um, he but he had an independent streak. And he didn't, um, he, he, you know, he believed in democracy. And he thought that the communists who as I said, for, by that stage, had, had been for decades committed to purely Legal and non-violent parliamentary means of of winning power. He Aldo Moro thought they should be brought into government. You know, he thought that they should be embraced and they should be a coalition government between the conservatives and the communists. Uh, And actually, it was already happening in a way that there was a kind of um, what's called in British British politics called a confidence and supply arrangement, whereby you know, the Conservatives would accommodate some of the policies of the communists. And in response, the communists would then vote, you know, vote through um, budgets and so forth. And so in, in the 1976 election, the communists has won 34 percent of the vote, you know, and they, you know, they, they were knocking on the doors of power, essentially. And Aldo Moro wanted to bring them in to kind of bring and which he, he called it the historic compromise. Um, and you know, he his his wife after his death, his wife testified that um, he'd been threatened by the Americans essentially to, to, to not do this, to not go ahead with this, and this essentially assassination, kidnapping, and uh, essentially assassination of Aldo Moro, um, brought him, um, you know, uh, brought him down, you know, and brought and uh, brought where it brought the communists down. They brought them, you know, where they'd been on the verge of getting power. um, This assassination aborted those efforts, you know, because after that, um, they, you know, they were discredited because the it's I mean, ironically, because the Red Brigades were enemies of the Communist Party, you know, they were an ultra left group and they saw the communists as as kind of selling out. And um, what's even more interesting is, as you said. Um, the, it, came, it later came to light and was proved, and this all, you know, deta- a lot of the details of this came out in the Italian um, Senate investigation, which happened in the in the early nineties. Um, by that stage, the Red Brigade was completely infiltrated by the Itali- Italian military intelligence. Um, it had been completely co-opted. Um, its founders were in prison, um and. You know, and yet this kidnapping happened um, with, you know, military precision. I mean, I give an account of it in my, the second article in my series. Um, it, I mean, it's really worth reading Philip Willen's book because he gives a really good um, really detailed account of it. Um, and in that, it you know, it, so this was not like so basically. The Red Brigades with this small ultra leftist group, which had been founded by lefty students um, in the late 60s. And yet yeah, this kidnap operation was carried out by, you know, with military precision, you know. Mm-hmm. So what happened was, you know, he was driving and it, it was literally Aldo Moro was driving. His driver was taking him to Parliament where, with documents and he was about to lay out his vision of the historic compromise. And his bodyguards um, were driving him to Parliament. But as he approached a crossroads, um, a white Fiat car, a small car with um, diplomatic plates, um, it reversed around the corner, blocked his path, um, and uh, two gunmen jumped out, opened fire. um, Two of the bodyguards were killed instantly. and The other three were finished off at close range, execution style. And Aldo Moro was kept alive, and they kidnapped him, and there was this whole, you know, national ordeal where they sent, you know, photos, and he was allowed to write letters and and so on. Um, but in the end, the government refused a prisoner exchange, and he was murdered, and his body was found in the back of a car. Um, but you know, the, the founder of the Red Brigades later said, and it's, it's in the BBC series, he later said, like he he couldn't believe that this, you know that he described it as an organization that was founded by, you know, young lads could, um, uh, you know, carry out this essentially military operation of kidnap and murder, uh, in this style. And it, it, you know, it does look, I mean, and there's accounts as well in, in the BBC documentary with Italian military intelligence. And they're saying that they're saying like, yeah, we, it was fully the red brigades at this time was fully infiltrated um, you know, the, uh, and it came out as well recently in recent reporting from Italy that, um, the flat, the, uh, the apartment that the red brigades were, um, renting at that time in Rome, um, was, um, owned by a company which uh, essentially a front company for the Italian military intelligence. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's absolutely every indication that. The ultra leftist group had been completely co opted by the secret state at this time, and there there is a testimony of one particular um, infiltrator who who you know he could have again according to the founder of the Red Brigades, he 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 was a, a Italian secret services agent who had infiltrated the Red Brigades, um, and they were about to um appoint him. The the leaders of the Red Brigades were about to appoint this infiltrator, of course unbeknownst to them at the time, but they were about to appoint him the head of their um military training. So the the secret state could then of that time infiltrated the group even more deeply and completely, you know, met all of the militants and just com- arrested them all, disbanded the whole thing. But they didn't want to. They wanted to keep the group going and that's what they did. Instead they just arrested the leaders put them in jail they kept the group going as a, essentially a puppet organization which they then directed in this way in a way that would be beneficial to the secret state and to the C- ultimately to the cia and that was essentially an assassination of aldo Moro. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. yeah see this is why um you know i i find it really silly when people today um when you know like leftists accuse a certain operation of uh like being perpetrated by the cia like a current operation and um you know there are other so-called leftists who are like oh, well, the CIA, um, you know, the CIA is not smart enough to do this. They're like a very bumbling, they definitely disorganized. Are. Yeah, but like in the past, they, they you know, created this highly sophisticated network where they could carry out like all these, where they could infiltrate the left and carry out all of these false flag operations exactly. um, in order to discredit the left and destroy the left. Um, and yeah. I mean, the reason that we don't know about like current CIA activities is because a lot of these documents are classified yeah. and they're not declassified until 50 years later. Like Operation Gladio, we didn't know about until 1990. Yeah. And before that, it had been going on for decades.
0: Exactly, exactly. And, you know, Amanda, I, I really think I mean, my friend Louis Alday makes this point about the whole the whole idea of, oh, the bumbling CIA and the bumbling MI5, and bumbling MI6. it I mean, I think, I mean, he, he makes the point and he says that that's almost certainly that's something they want us to believe. That's an image they put forward. In that itself is
1: CIA propaganda, probably, yeah.
0: It yeah, is, it is disinformation. I, I think, I mean, I think that, I think there's a lot in that. And
1: I mean, look, it doesn't
0: mean they get, they never get anything wrong. Then obviously they're not perfect, but essentially... And there is blowback that is unintended sometimes, you know, they, they, they don't always get things right. Absolutely. But just to say they're bubbling idiots and they couldn't do this, of course they could. There's a, you know, it's a proven, this stuff I'm talking about is proven history. You know, it. They, these are essentially, I mean, these are professionals. They know what they're doing. You know, they're not morons. Um, it doesn't mean they're going to get everything right. And then they're going, they're going to get everything their own way. Clearly not, you know, they wouldn't have, um, wanted the communists to get as popular as they did in, in Western Europe. Absolutely not. But, um, you know, they they have limitless budgets, you know, very professional people in place. Uh, and by and large, they know what they're doing. So these things, to, you know, to say this is going to have no effect is, is beyond naive. Is irresponsible, you know,
1: mm-hmm. why I mean, I'll end on this question. Um, Why do you think it's important in this particular historical moment with the war in Ukraine, to remember something like Operation Gladio? Like, why is it important that people should know about it?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good question. Uh, So I was working on this series, it took me a little while to research it and read the books. And I mean, even aside from just reading the books, these are the kind of books that you read and you read one chapter and you're like, what the hell? There's so much new information in it. You have to kind of sit with it for a while. And it's it's difficult to get your head around. You know, it genuinely is. And I think that is part of the reason why people don't want to accept it, because it is kind of frightening in a way that they could just do all this stuff.
1: I feel like if you didn't know that much about the CIA and you started reading all this, since there's not a lot of information of it out there, uh, you would think that it's like conspiracy or all lies or like completely yeah. made up
0: it does sound that way but it's you know it's it's um it's very well proven but i i think that i mean that's exactly it that so i i think the reason that we we do need to know more about this and we do need to as leftists we do need to you know educate ourselves more about it and um to talk about it more is because we're still living with gladio i mean again uh, Louie another point louis made to me recently was that Gladio was quite victorious in a lot of ways, and we, we're seeing the legacy of that in um, Ukraine, where really Nazism is being normalised, and and that doesn't just have consequences for Ukraine. It's na- Nazism Nazism is being you um, normalised in Western Europe, where as you said at the beginning, like it seems like every t- pretty much more or less every time, you know, there's a photo posted by a Ukrainian, um, the Ukrainian National Guard, the Ukrainian military, or even a Ukrainian politician like Zelensky, um, his bodyguard, you know, had this, whatever it was, SS patch and, you know, this Ukrainian soldiers with, um, you know, swastika tattoos and all this kind of stuff and other Nazi symbols like the Black Sun. Um, it, it, It is just being normalized and we have to resist that, you know, and to, i think it does help that we're to be aware of the history of this because i mean as i said i was i was so i was writing and preparing this story before the i think before even the invasion of um uh of ukraine before the russian operation in, in eastern ukraine um and you know and then you started to see all the social media activity and there was that one particular um tweet which was particularly on the nose because it was by the actual nato <laughs> blue tick nato uh, twitter account and they posted for international women's day of all things oh look at all these photos of um, ukrainian women they're, they're really great and they're in uniform etc and of course one of them had a black sun patch which is a, a you know for people who are familiar with the far right it's it's a nazi symbol um, and you know she's just there, and and uh, people pointed it out, and NATO then they soon deleted it, uh, and and then so I, I use that kind of as, as the hook for the first piece because you know it it shows just how normalized um Nazism is within the NATO context that um, they can kind of close their eyes to this, and there's a long history of it, you know, it's not, I, I mean in a way all this sounds really outlandish and crazy but when you know the history when you know the history about you know how klaus barbie was spirited out of um was was you know rescued really from the war crimes tribunal by the americans you know um by the american uh, precursor of the cia um and all these so many other high-level nazi officers Western, Western Germany. And, you know, a lot of them were uh, spirited to um, South America, where they were of service to um, pro-American military dictatorships. Um, You know, when you know all this history, it's actually not that unusual. It's still as outrageous, but we we need to resist the normalization of it, I think. And I think we, we need to learn this history, even ourselves.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, this history is, um, you know, it really, it really, um, so the US always likes to uh, think of itself as a hero in World War II, and that they were the ones who defeated the Nazis. And this is the history and the story that the US likes to tell Americans, but this history, it like directly counters that. And it tells you exactly the role of the that the US played in working with the Nazis. I mean, like even during World War II, you know, um, US uh big business was basically financing the Nazi regime. Um, Ford Motor Companies, IBM, they were all they all had factories in Germany and they were like basically funding the Nazis. And then you have these secret uh operations like Gladio and Paperclip, in which they were like uh, working directly with Nazis. And I mean, um, it just shows you that the US, you know, obviously, it doesn't care about democracy at all. And it will at any cost, um, stop the rise of any sort of mildly left or socialist movement from yeah. forming. And, mm-hmm. um, and that like, It will work with fascists and that really fascism is the logical conclusion of capitalism. Yeah,
0: exactly. And, and, um, and of imperialism as well, because I mean, you know, you mentioned the Americas, everything you just said about the Americans is, you know, equally as true of the British, you know, because they um, I mean, we have the same mythology in this country, you know, we have the same thing of, oh, plucky little Britain stood up to the Nazis and then, you know, we defeated them with the D-Day landings. You know, the D-Day landings were a sh- sideshow compared to the, I mean, it, it's unthinkable. What what was it, like 20 million Russians or, or whatever it was? who
1: That sounds who, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: Who, who were killed fighting, um fighting the Nazis and um, freeing, you know, freeing Europe from the the grip of the Nazis and of ending the Holocaust. You know, people may not like Stalin, but he ended, the fact is he, he liberated the death camps. You know, he, he he terminated the Holocaust. I mean, that is a historical fact and it's one that we don't um, like to face up to in, in with this um, American and British mythology about the Second World War. Um, you know... The fact is, for the longest time, Adolf Hitler wanted to be in alliance with the British, and he made so many overtures to be uh, and the British ruling class was incredibly Nazi was incredibly pro Nazi. Uh, Winston even Winston Churchill was was pro Mussolini. You know, he was he was Mm -hmm. pro fascist in that respect. Um, and um, you know, and and the the Nazis learned so much. I mean, talking about imperialism, they learned so much, especially from the what the British did. Um, you know, they asked the German the Americans Empire.
1: Americans too, like they. Um, a lot of the Jim Crow uh, laws in the U.S. the Nazis actually studied. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, it's uh, w- what the British did. Uh, you, you know, the the the, um, the Germans. The German Empire before the Nazis was, you know, was relatively small. I mean, they, they certainly carried out some egregious crimes like in Namibia, um, genocides. Um, but it um, kind of paled in comparison to what the British did. You know, the British carried out so many horrendous uh, crimes around the world. The British Empire was responsible for so much death and destruction. And that was something the, the Nazis absolutely learned from. As well as from the white supremacist regime, uh, the settler colony in uh, in um, in North America, certainly. So, yeah, I mean, all these things are tied together, and it's like um, I think the thing, <laughs> the thing that once you start to realise of of um, just how pro Nazi um, the Americans and the British were after the Second World War, um, it's like. You, the kind of thing where you sort of realize, yeah, we're the baddies.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we are the baddies.
0: It is that, it is that you know, so it, I mean, yeah, we have to push back against this normalization of Nazism and fascism and um, this, uh, this disappearing of our history.
1: All right, Asa, um, maybe to end, could you let people know where can people find your work?
0: Yeah, it's asawinstanley.substack.com So I do original articles there and I also repost my work from elsewhere, which is mostly the electronic intifada. So it all gets um, posted there. You know, people can sign up for free um, to get my articles in their inbox, in their email inbox, and they can also choose the paid option and to support my journalism. And I have some locked posts um, that they'll be able to get access to if they you know, if they sign up for a small monthly or annual amount and the, the name that most of the um, Gladio series um, is, is behind the paywall. So um, yeah, appreciate it. If people sign up.
1: Yeah. Please sign up uh, as someone who has a Patreon, please support independent journalists and independent content creators. Absolutely. All right. Asa, thank you so much for coming on. It was a, like, it was a really great conversation and i feel like you're one of really the only people who like really knows about operation gladio so you were like to me you were the perfect person to invite to come on the show to talk about it
0: oh thanks for having me i enjoyed the conversation